Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning. For those of you who didn't get to go out of town, I'm very sorry. I'm glad you're here. Uh, last week for pants. Last week for pants. You got to be dressed, but you can wear shorts. Uh, not everybody's built for shorts. You know who you are. All right, that's all I'm going to say. All right, so uh, we are in a series that we're going to continue right through this Memorial Day weekend, and this is um, called The Borderlands of Belief and Unbelief, and John is really helping us, I think, look at what it means to have faith, what it means to struggle with faith, what it means to come to faith, all of those things. And so, uh, come today to, I want to start with a quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, we all feel the riddle of the earth. Without anyone to point it out, the mystery of life is the plainest part. The mystery of life is the plainest part. Now what he's talking about is, uh, we all sense that there's more to life going on than what we can actually see. So when you encounter things like love, you fall in love, or uh, you, you, uh, you have to discern between good and evil, moral issues, or you get inside of you a sense of justice, uh, or you, you wonder about the afterlife. You think about um, you, this desire for meaning, these kinds of things. These things, he's trying to say, are actually more real than the things you can actually see. Uh, Os Guinness has uh, a couple books that I truly love. He's, he's, pretty prolific in his writing, but one of his books is my favorite, and in it he tells a story about E.F. Schumacher, who was an economist, who happened to be visiting St. Petersburg in Russia during the Soviet era of communism. And on this little trip, uh, he's sort of doing his sightseeing, and he has a map in his hand, and even though he has the map in his hand and he's using it sort of, you know, I mean, painstakingly, Uh, he realizes he's lost. And what happened was what he saw on paper didn't match what he was actually seeing right in front of him. These these several uh, Russian Orthodox churches all around, um, unmistakable by their golden sort of onion domes. And uh, he actually asked to get someone to, he, he knows he's right, he knows the street he's on because of the map but they're not on the map. And so some, somebody has to help him. A native there has to help him. Uh, and he, the native tells him, we don't show churches on our maps. And then it occurred to him, and he writes this later. This is after the trip. It occurs to him. He writes it later. He says, it occurred to me that this is not the first time I had been given a map which failed to show many things I could see right in front of me. All through school and university, I had been given maps of life and knowledge on which there was hardly a trace of many of the things that I most cared about and that seemed to me to be of the greatest possible importance to the conduct of my life. And I think he's right. 
I think the most meaningful things in life are not tangible. They're not material. You can't see them. And that's the mystery of life that G.K. Chesterton says sometimes is more real than the things that I really can see. Now, I've been arguing in this series, in case you haven't been here, that science has sort of become an institutional authority. And uh, it's dominating our sort of cultural thinking. So that there are many of us are ignoring the deeper, sort of higher issues of life. Um, and, and sort of grabbing onto the material and not thinking clearly enough about the immaterial, the mysterious. So science will tell you that matter is the sum total of existence. If it's not physical, if it's not material, then it doesn't exist. So if it can't be measured, if it can't be photographed, if it can't be cataloged, and you can't break it down into particles, then it isn't there. And so we're asking the question, but is that really the whole of reality? I think Chesterton is right. It's not. There are a lot of meaningful things in life that don't fall into that category. In fact, Guinness says this, and you'll like this, the notion of proof has an exaggerated status in our age. Very right about that. As heirs and beneficiaries of science, and we are beneficiaries of science, I love science, we accord a profound respect to verification and exactitude. But science and mathematics are the farthest things from our minds when we pause to appreciate a sunset or fall in love or come to faith in God. The reason is that strict mathematical and scientific proofs have to do with the lower areas of life. While falling in love and coming to faith, and I would add other things, are higher, more important matters. Not because they're less rational, but because they're more personal. I think he's right. And today as we come to the fourth sign in the Gospels, because John has put together, uh, sort of hand-selected a group of signs. He tells us this in his book. That I've hand-selected a group of miracles, a group of signs. I'm going to call them signs, not miracles. Because they point to something and I want you to see what we saw. You got to be careful about signs, he'll say, because sometimes you'll get so enamored by the sign that you'll miss the point, which all of them point to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this particular sign, uh, John addresses this issue about higher and deeper things, looking beyond the material. And you're going to find it's very difficult. It's very difficult to do, and I'd argue that it's maybe harder to do today than ever before, although it's always been, it's always been uh, an issue for humanity. Now, the miracle in John that we're about to look at we're actually not going to read the story of the miracle itself. It's so familiar that I'm just going to summarize it for you. It's in all of the Gospels, all four Gospels. It's the only miracle that are, that's in all the Gospels. And John adds some information about this that no other Gospel writer does. And so uh, it's the feeding of the 5,000. And there's also the feeding of the 4,000 in the Gospels, synoptic Gospels anyway. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you've got this a number of times. And the reason it's, 
everywhere is because it's such a big, it's massive, it's creative. There's so many witnesses to it, so many experience it. Um, that, and it's so basic, explains who God is and what he came to do, that it's, that it's everywhere. And John tells us things about it, because I'll bet you grew up learning certain things about that story that uh, are just not the point. They're just not the point of the story. And John helps us. Now, here's what you need to know. This is the time of year. Remember, Jesus is in Galilee. That's where he's been. He's bopped over to Jerusalem and come back to Galilee. And now they're going back to Galilee. This would be months later after he does the healing we looked at last week by the pool of Bethesda. This would be months later because he's going back to Jerusalem now for Passover. And John marks all of the festivals that Jesus makes sure that he keeps with his disciples. And so they're heading to uh, Jerusalem. In fact, everybody is. Thousands of people. Everyone is heading to Jerusalem for Passover. Okay, there's non-negotiable. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's excited about it. And there's a messianic fever in the air. Because in the minds of every single Jew headed there is the story of the Old Testament and the Passover. Uh, Moses leading the people out of Egypt, crossing the sea, and Jesus, or God, providing manna in the wilderness. That's all in their brains right now. And all of those stories right there are stories that Israel is looking, when they're looking for the Messiah, they know he'll provide bread like that. That's in their minds. When he shows up to provide bread, then we'll know the Messiah is here. So that sort of anticipation is high. And uh, so they're on the east side of the Galilee. And you can imagine this. Imagine thousands of people heading that direction. And they're coming from everywhere. Every little side road trail you can get down, every shortcut. If you were heading to Jerusalem and you had to walk there from Galilee, uh, you'd be looking for the shortest trail. You'd be looking for the shortest way there. And that's what they were doing. They're coming from everywhere. And they all gather around the east side of the Sea of Galilee as they're heading. And there's thousands of them, like around 5,000 families So you count that. And Jesus decides in this moment when everybody's got this sort of messianic fever burning in them, I think I'm going to feed this crowd. Remember, he never did anything just to do it. Even though he had compassion on them, he's going to give them food. There was a greater reason for it. So uh, you'll remember the story. And here's the, you know, uh, the only thing I'm going to say about the story, because we need to get to the, to the, uh, to the point of it. Jesus looks up, sees the crowd, and he says to Philip, and this is just fantastic that Jesus says this. This is God joking. This really is. There's no other way to understand this. This is not misinterpretation. You look at Philip, and you're standing in front of, you know, perhaps 15 or 20,000 people, and you say, Philip, where can we get some food for these folks? That's a joke. That is a joke, and it's Jesus again Just like in the story of the, remember when he walked up to the guy at the pool of Bethesda and he said, do you want to be well? And as soon as he did that, Jesus is trying to elicit a response. He's trying to get him to say out loud what everybody knows. Where can we buy bread for them? And it even tells us in the text, Jesus said this to test him. And I think screw with him is a better word. I think it is. I actually think it is. He knew what was going. He knew what he was going to do. And he, listen to this. He knew what he would have to do. There'd be no other way to feed him. Philip says, 
This is essentially what Philip says. Uh, we don't have the money, uh, first of all. That's the first thing that would come to everybody's mind, cash. Cold, hard cash, baby. We don't have enough money for that. Plus, we're in a desert. Even if we had the money, we would have to go get it, haul it back here for 25,000 people. By the time you did that, Passover would be over. Passover would have passed over. And so it's just nuts, and the whole thing, and you can, you can hear it. Now I'm skipping. We know what happens. What happens? And let me just go here in case you don't know the story. Andrew, Simon's brother, another little smart out of guy, says, hey, we got a kid over here. He's got a little, you know, couple of fish and some, uh, or, and, and some bread. How about that? And you don't know what Andrew's thinking. The text doesn't tell us. I don't know if Andrew's saying, I think we could do something with this, or if Andrew's going, yeah, this is all we got. I don't know which one he's doing. All I know is Jesus uses that. And by the way, if you've read this story, I've heard it a million times in your life, everyone loves the little boy. And my wife told me when we were talking about it this week, she goes, yeah, every time I heard a sermon on that, it was all about the little boy and giving up his lunch. And that was, I go, this has nothing to do with this story. Do you know this story is told in every gospel, even the feeding of the 4,000. By the time you add that up, four, six, seven times you get in a story like this, the boy's never mentioned until John. John's the only one who mentions the boy because he's not significant to the story. I love little boys. He's got nothing to do with it. All right, we just realized this is all we got. All right, so uh, here's what happens. Jesus feeds them, and when he does that, when he does that, the people saw the sign, and John's, this is John's sign theology, don't miss it, when they saw that, they said to them, this is the prophet. What prophet would they have in mind? It's Passover and there's bread. Moses. Momo. Mo. They got Mo on their mind. And Deuteronomy 18 promises there'll be a prophet that comes, like Moses. And so they're going, this guy provides manna. I think Mo's back. Mo's back. That's what they're seeing. Now, watch this. Um, because he knew, because of that, they were going to come seize him and take him by force and make him king. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week. Because right after this, by the way, he sends the disciples across the sea. Just so you know, there's another sign in here that we have to skip and come back to next week. And that sign is Jesus is going to send his disciples across the sea to escape this crowd, and then he's going to walk on the water. Okay? And the whole sea story is very similar to Moses and the sea. So in both of these pictures, in the Passover picture, you've got the sea and the manna. All right? So we're going to skip that. But that's what he does. And here's the question. Here's the question. How do you take Jesus? You take him, do you take him by force? Is that how you get him? Is that what this is? Is that the kind of God that he is? Is that who he's presenting himself as the Messiah? Somebody you got to grab hold, take, manipulate, control, use how you want, use to feed your belly? And we're going to learn in the story, that's not how you handle God. You don't take him by force and you don't use him and you don't manipulate him and you can't control him. And if you're using God, you'll never find him. And he'll never satisfy, he'll only frustrate you. And that's what they're doing. So, 
And you can see that the sign here, which is supposed to point to God at a higher level, not just somebody you can use, sometimes signs are, have a negative impact or a corrosive impact on genuine faith. That's why you got to constantly assess what you're believing about him. Because you can miss it even though you see something powerful. And that's where they're at. And that's what happens in 26. I tell you the truth. You're looking for me because you saw the signs and because your belly got full. And if that's why you're looking for me, if you're looking for me to feed your belly, then you miss me. You missed it. So then what is the sign for then? What should we see? Well, that's what the text is about. And there's a lot here, by the way. This is the longest chapter in John. It's, in, it's incredibly complicated. And there's a lot of things we could enjoy doing, but we just don't have a lot of time. And so we got to sort of reduce this down. So I'm going to move pretty fast through some of the pieces, and then I'm going to uh, stop and, and sort of uh, put it together in a way we can, we can grab it. But here's what Jesus is going to say to this crowd who's trying to take him by force and make him a king. You got, you've, you've missed the picture. Don't work for food that disappears, but for the food that remains to eternal life. So we're going to see this important word, and we're going to see that there's a couple of different kinds of food. One disappears and one's for eternal life, and the food which the Son of Man will give to you. In other words, there's a contrast here between work and give. And then he writes, so then they said to him, what must we do to accomplish the deed God requires? Jesus replied, this is the deed God requires, believe. Well, that's going to frustrate you, sort of stop you in your tracks a little bit if you're looking for something you can do, all right? Uh, And here's the thing. They miss this. They hear work, and they're like, tell us what to do. They miss, the only way to get this is to have it given to you. You can't get it anywhere. So they're missing that point. Now, let me just say something about food so you understand these folks a little bit. Food, food, was, a, food was a crisis, very similar to how it was in our home when the four boys were there. It was a crisis. You feed these four animals three times a day and it's expensive and it's a lot of work and that's, and that's with refrigeration and processed foods. Man, you can feed kids anything, okay? And my boys would have eaten anything, all right? And each other had we not provided food. All right, so, you know, processed foods, you have, um, they, they, we have refrigeration, uh, we have supermarkets, you can go buy things fast, um, uh, Food for them was a crisis, man. When you woke up every day, you're just trying to figure out how to get food on the table three times. Well, you had to plant, you had to, har- you had to harvest, you had to, you had to tend, you had to, you know, after you harvest it, you had to clean it, you know, prepare it, cook it. It was a lot of work every day just for food. So somebody comes along and says, I can set up a fast food restaurant right here by the Sea of Galilee. You're like, you're the man. I mean, what family, every family, you know, you're talking about a successful, it'd be the Chick-fil-A of the, it'd be the Chick-fil-A of, of society. 
They have no inkling that what Jesus is going to provide them is a gift. They can't go find it somewhere. They can't work for it. So you work for food, but the kind of food you work for that we're talking about here just disappears. They're, they're already wanting more and they just got fed. So what is Jesus trying to say to them? This is what he says here. They said to him, uh, okay, well, if this is a, you got a different kind of form, uh, food and you're telling us God tells us to believe, what are you going to do? Here they want another sign. What are you going to do so that we, what other sign will you do? By the way, if you want signs, you'll never get enough. If you need them, you'll never get enough. If you need God to prove to you all the time, you'll never get enough of those. And it just reveals really on the inside of you a sort of stubbornness. It doesn't reveal a desire for more because they're saying, let us see and believe. And this is what Jesus says to them. So they say, what will you do? And by the way, they give him a suggestion. (laughs) Don't you love that? Yeah, hey God, what will you do? Oh, by the way, this is what you could do. And they bring up the manna that God provided in the wilderness. God provided food for the bread for them every single day, special kind of bread every day in the wilderness. They're like, hey, we'll take some of that bread. He gave them bread from heaven. What are you going to give us? And uh, Jesus says, well, I'll tell you the truth. It's not Moses who gave you that bread. Uh, My father is giving you the true bread. There's a different kind of real bread. It's real. It's mysterious. It's different. It's not physical bread. For the bread of God is, is the one. It's a person who comes down, you're going to see this repeated, from heaven and gives life to the world. He gives it. It's a person who gives Life, eternal life. So they're like, sir, give us this bread all the time. They still can't make the connection to the mystical. They cannot get past the physical bread. This is a struggle for, for us as humans. So they want manna. Uh, but Jesus is revealing, I am the bread of life finally just comes right out and says it. Man, this is the clearest he's been in in all of the signs. I am the bread. The one who comes to me will never go hungry. The one who believes in me, so these two are similar, coming to me and believing in me, will never go hungry and he'll never be thirsty. But I've told you this, you've seen me and you still don't believe. There's a willful rejection inside of them to this whole concept. You mean you're not going to give us regular bread? You mean you're not going to give me what I want? Well then, no thanks. I don't want to see. So, Jesus is about to do something very important here from the miracle. He's about to say there's a kind of hunger... And there's a kind of thirst that physical bread cannot satisfy. And he's trying to draw their attention past their belly to their soul to realize there's a hunger and thirst that's deeper. There's a sort of a core hunger, a core emptiness that uh, they need to get in touch with. By the way, it's not easy to get in touch with that all the time. It's, It's a very painful thing when you discover it. 
And so Jesus is going to say to them, I am the bread of life. And then he's going to say, this is the bread that has come down. You've seen this many times. So that a person may eat and not die. Definitely different kind of bread. I'm the living bread that came again, came down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So here we're talking about sacrifice. So here's what we know about the bread so far. Number two is that it has to be sacrificed. Number one is that it comes down from heaven. It descends. It descends and then it has to be sacrificed because he's describing his flesh. He's describing his death here, which he's done in the signs. He's alluded to it in the signs, but here he's getting graphic. All right, Uh, I'm the bread of life. So we know two things about the bread, and there's one other thing you got to do with the bread. The bread descends, the bread gets sacrificed, and then one other thing, which we'll see in a minute. So let's start here. I am the bread of life. The rest of this text is back and forth, lots of issues. We could do a series on it, okay? But we're just going to highlight this phrase, and we're going to pull it apart like this. I'm going to start here. What does Jesus say? Let's start with life. Two words for life in Greek, bios and zoe. Bios is where we get the word for biology. It's where we get for the word for physical existence. Zoe is the eternal word. It's a different kind of life. Eternal life that Jesus is describing here is a quality of life. It doesn't just go on forever. More importantly, because it's something you can have right now. As soon as you come to Jesus and believe, you can have that life right now. In other words, somehow Zoe gets into the bios, the guy who's just existing, physically existing. The guy who's just existing, the bios guy, that's uh, all of us, we're just every day going from hunger to hunger and desire to desire and thirst to thirst. We just survive every day by just grabbing whatever we need to survive. That's that kind of existence. And that's the kind of existence that at some point you just get weary of. You get weary of it. That's why when people get old enough, when they get so old, and then they pass away, there's a time in people's lives toward the end when they're like, I, I, I've been around older people, close to dying. They would say, I'd just rather be gone now. And how many times have somebody passed away and we said, they're better off? Really? Why? Because the, the bios existence is, is wearisome. And eventually you just... And it's just existing. There's no ultimate significance to it. There's no ultimate meaning. It just goes out of existence. The life Jesus is offering here. See, you just need bread for that life. You just need to eat something to, just to keep you existing. But the zoe, eternal life, that's what happens when, when into the bios is infused this eternal quality of life. Something comes inside of you. And it, and it, and it gives you a the quality of eternity, it, it, it infuses you with purpose and meaning and love and forgiveness and a sense of right and wrong and a sense of ultimacy and a sense of hope that nothing here in the bios can accomplish or satisfy. Um, I've told you before, there are different times in life when you'll get in touch with that deeper hunger. Sometimes it's when the bottom falls out of your life and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm really not in control and I don't know that my life will ever be right again. All of a sudden you're you're connected. It's like when Alex Trebek, we talked about him last week. 
when he said, you know, I, the physical pain I can handle. It's the deep, deep surges of sadness or the surges of deep, deep sadness that keep coming over me. Yeah, that's that hunger underneath. But he's drawing strength from the fans. That's bios. That's not ultimately going to satisfy that deep, deep sadness. And because he's going through such a difficult time, he's aware of that sadness, but he's trying to feed it with bios material. It's not going to work. The the praise of fans, your smarts, your good looks, Alex, uh, your fame, your wisdom, your knowledge, none of it's going to satisfy that deep sadness. It disappears, what Jesus said. That's the food that disappears. Don't work for that. He's counting on that. He's in trouble. It can't feed that. You might be in here today, you sense that deep sadness because something's going wrong in your life. There are others of you, and it's the worst kind of sadness in my opinion, it's the worst kind is when life is really good and then you get that deep, deep surge of sadness. Like even though I have a great wife and even though I have great kids and even though I have, you know, house is good and looks like financially we're gonna be all right, this is happening, that's happening, job's good, I can't really complain about anything. You ever ever run into those people that can't complain about anything, you wanna slap them? You can't complain about anything? How about a slap for you? All right? We can have a slapping ministry right here at church. For the ones that have nothing to complain about. When your life is that good and then all of a sudden that deep sadness hits you like none of this is enough. What's wrong with me? How many people screw up their life? With everything you could want. That's the worst kind. Steve Jobs read this week about him. Uh, close to his death, before he died, remember he was the Apple guy, okay? he was brilliant, what he provided, what he accomplished, all those things. This is what he said uh, as he was nearing death. He said, it's strange to think you accumulate all this experience and it just goes away. It just all ends. That's bios. All this experience, and it just goes away. And he said, so, I really want to believe that something survives. Oh, you do? That's a deeper hunger. That's a deeper hunger that not even that brilliant man, and not even his success, could satisfy He said, the last thing I want is to imagine that there's just this off switch. You click it and you're gone. That's the deeper hunger. C.S. Lewis put it like this. I think you'll like this. This is mere Christianity. He says, most people, and this is the line that you got to really grab. If they have really learned to look in their own hearts, this is not easy to do. They're struggling with it. We struggle with it. We don't want to look at our own hearts. We don't want to feel that sadness. It's too overwhelming. But he says, if you did, you'd know that they do want, and they want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. Bios can't provide it. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you. They never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country to visit, or first take up some subject that excites us. Our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. He says, I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called an unsuccessful marriage or holiday or learned career. I mean, don't think of the worst circumstance. I'm speaking of the best one. 
There was something. We have grasped that. And in the first moment of longing, fades away in reality. We've all had that experience. And he says, I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and the scenery may have been excellent. Chemistry may be very, a very interesting job for you. But something has evaded us. That's what Jesus is trying to get to. Under there. And he's pretty much going to say, Jesus is saying, there is a kind of bread that you can eat that takes you from just existing to living, to being alive. Jesus is defining being alive much different. Now, you need to know that uh, this is something that they missed in Deuteronomy. You know, when you think about the manna, because they're saying that, hey, give us manna, we'll take that all the time. That's the bios. That's give me the fans clapping for me. That's give me food every day. That's the bios life. Remember, you, you may not remember this. This may strike you as, I didn't remember reading that. When God told them in Deuteronomy, when, when it was, you know, all over, you know why I made you hungry in the woman? You know why I did that? This is what he says. You shall remember, this is way after the fact. You'll remember the, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. Whether you'd keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna. You didn't know what that was or where it came from. Okay. He says, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Manna was never designed to be the thing you attach yourself to. Remember what would happen to it if you did that? It spoiled, it stunk, and they all did it. Hoard the gift, hoard the, hoard the bread, and Jesus would, God would spoil it. Why? It was a lesson. Whatever you do, don't grab onto anything here to fill that ultimate desire. The only thing you need is me. You can trust me every day and survive on that in an ultimate kind of way that manna won't ever do for you. And they missed it. They missed it in the Old Testament and they missed it here. So let's say you say to yourself right now, okay, well, tell me how to get this bread. What, what, what do I got to do to get it? Because they kind of asked the question too. How do we get it? And this is where Christianity is very unique because here's the problem. And it is a huge problem. Now, we just sort of defined this life. And now you've got a huge problem, by the way. You have a, a cosmic problem, actually. Because now you've got human beings saying, hey, I'd like to have that bread. How does, how does Zoe get in bios? That's the question. And Christianity's answer to that is very, very unique and, and defensive, as you'll see. But it creates a problem for God and for humans. Humans have the problem of trying to figure out how we're going to get that if we can't go get it somewhere. And God has the problem of trying to figure out how to make it available. Now, remember in the Old Testament, this is Jesus says, I am. So let's go to this side of the statement, the I am. 
Because this is now an I am problem. He's told you you can't get it anywhere here. Now he's up there and got to figure out how to get it to you. Okay, and so when they thought of I am, and by the way, John has seven I am's in his book. I am the bread, I am the light, all those are in the, in the gospel of John. And here he is the I am. And when Israel, when, when those people who he just fed would have heard the words I am, they would have thought of Moses and they would have thought of the name that God gave Moses to give to Pharaoh when Pharaoh asked him, why should I let these people go? Tell them I am sent you. What was God saying? This is really important. God was saying, I'm not, you can't refer to me in the past. You can't refer to me as the future. I just is. That's what he's saying. I just is. I always exist. I'm beginningless. I'm endless. I am being itself. I am life itself. I'm the source of life and the source of reality. I don't depend on anything or anyone. That's what he's saying here. And so you're like going, okay, well, how is that someone wholly other than us going to come inside us? I mean, that becomes the problem in the question. So just follow me on this. He's so far above us. If you remember the book of Exodus, you'll remember that the problem the book of Exodus sort of creates is how is this holy God who lives on the mountain in clouds and dark and smoke and fire going to interact with the human beings down there? How are they ever going to come together? He's so holy and he's so holy other than us. This creates a massive issue. He's so far above us. And how, listen, listen, when you think about that, you think to yourself, how incredibly arrogant of anyone to say, oh, I'll get there. Don't worry about me. I'll figure it out. Oh God, I'll handle it. You need me to do this, 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 and this. I'll handle it. How incredibly arrogant is that when you think about who this God is? And I will tell you this. I mean, he's so holy and he's so beyond us. How arrogant to think we could reach him. And by the way, what would it say about a God you could reach? This is a really interesting thought about all religion. What would it say? What does it say about the God you can attain? You know, uh, Islam tells you there's five pillars. Go get it. Uh, just, just live them. Uh, Hinduism will tell you there's an eightfold path, or Buddhism will tell you there's an eightfold path. Hinduism is a whole different thing. It's way out there. Uh, and when you get there, there's nothing there. I don't know how to explain it. All I'm saying is that's it. Okay? But Buddhism, Buddhism will give you an eightfold path. You follow it. You're capable. You can do it. All religions are telling you, let me tell you how you can do it. And if you can do it, what does it tell you about the God? He must be small and petty if you can reach him. And not only must he be small and petty, you must be something if you can get to him. You see how it just reverses the table? I'm everything. He's not really that big. See, all religions will tell you you can do it. All religions will tell you, hey, we have the bread. We know where the bread is, and we can tell you how to go get it. Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 no. I don't have the bread. I am the bread. You have me or you don't have it. You take me or you don't get it. 
There's no path I send you on. There's no, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am, I am it. That's the difference between what Jesus is offering. You still have to answer the question like, how does this holy other kind of God get inside us? How does the Zoe become into the bios? And I heard one pastor say, and I just have to say, this is fantastic. He said, how do you get an elephant in a dollhouse without crushing it? You just don't. You can't get that holy God in there. Not without crushing it. And so what's the answer? How? How does it happen? That's the middle part. That's the bread. I'm going to have to become bread in order for you to get this. I'm going to have to become something so basic to you. Something you can grab with your hands and break. Something consumable. Something edible. Something killable. Something weak and vulnerable. You know, they knew this and we know this. Nothing you eat hasn't died before you eat it. You know, there's a few minerals, some salt maybe. Most of the stuff has to die before you eat it. Remember in John 12 when Jesus says, unless a kernel falls into the ground and dies, there's no grain, there's no fruit. Whether it's grain, whether it's plants, whether it's animals, it has to die before you get it. Jesus is saying, I'm becoming something as basic as bread. Everything we eat has to die so we can live. Jesus is saying, if the bread stays alive, you'll die. But if the bread dies, you'll live. I've come to die. I've come to be breakable. You know, my grandmother used to say this, and it just really dawned on me what she really meant when I was growing up. And I lived with her a lot. One of my favorite people ever. She used to describe people as, he's a piece of bread. It's Italian. I don't know. I don't know if you ever heard this, Steve, but my grandmother used to say, hey, he's a piece of bread. And I used to wonder, what did she mean by that? It would mean that, you know, if I, if I had to talk to somebody, I'd say, you know, I, I really got to talk to, you know, uncle, you know, yeah, he's a piece of bread. Goes, what did you mean by that? She means he's, he's easy to get to, vulnerable. Uh, you can have a conversation with him easy, he'll help you, no problem. He was a piece of bread, just soft and easy. That's what she used to mean by that. And I didn't really understand that until right now. Here's God saying, I'm just a piece of bread accessible, vulnerable, easy to get. And so what we've learned is the only way to have this life is Jesus saying, I, the only way for you to have this life, only, only way for this to get in here, you, I gotta die, I gotta become bread. I, there's no other way to connect the two. This, this is not happening. There's only one thing that remains. Remember, the bread descends from heaven. That's Jesus. Bread has to be sacrificed. That's the cross. That has to happen. He's got to become bread. He's got to be broken for you. Isn't that what the text says? But here's the last one. And it's, it's so outrageous. It's outrageous. 
Do you know that after he says this, everybody runs, nobody wants anything to do with him? That's how outrageous this is. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You'll never get that life in you unless you eat and drink it. You eat his death. That's what flesh and blood mean. You've got to consume it. It descends, it's sacrificed, and it's got to be consumed. Consumed. Completely taken in. Used as your source of life. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Don't miss that line. It's said in here every once in a while like a little refrain as if to say, yeah, forever. Hey, Steve Jobs, you know that instinct you have that it ought to just go on and on and on? Yeah, this is it. It only comes from him. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. This would have blown the minds of these folks. These are especially the Israelites who had all kind of dietary restrictions. You know, have you ever, you know how hard it is to change your diet? (laughs) Jesus is saying, uh, they weren't allowed to eat bloody meat and they weren't allowed to drink blood. And Jesus is saying, you know, you got to consume that. And all he was saying was, that's not, this is not literal, hillside. The text has been very clear. You come to me and believe. That's how you get eternal life. It's coming to me and believing is so strong a picture. It's not just come to me and admire. Not just come to me and see. Not just, hey, great guy, you got to eat. You got you to act like your hunger will never get met unless you have this. This is the only meal you're going to get that will provide this. That's what he's saying. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me and I in him. There's the elephant in the dollhouse. How does it get inside us? You got to eat it. You got to trust it. You got to believe it. You got to come to him. You got to know he's the only possible resource. And this is so radical. And it's not just radical. It's not just radical because God would become bread. What God have you ever heard of has become bread? So basic and humble and breakable. It's it's incredibly humble to do that. It's incredibly humble, by the way. This is the reason why everybody scatters. To eat it. Why? Because when you grab the bread Jesus is offering, you're basically saying this. I guess I can't do it myself. And I'm going to have to take what he gives me. Because I can't do it myself. Remember after everybody runs, what does Peter say? Because Jesus looks at them and says, you guys going too? You guys want to go too? You want to leave me here too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? He says, he verbalizes what Philip verbalized. Philip's like, we can't feed these people food. We don't have any of the resources to do it. Peter at the end of the passage is saying, We're in the same boat spiritually. Spiritually, we have nowhere to go. We have no resources for the kind of life you're describing. We can't get it anywhere else but you. So we're not going anywhere. Even though what you said is ridiculous. I gotta tell you, 
That's nuts. It is nuts. So if God, God is basically saying there's no other way for me to give you this than to be crushed. Because any other way would crush you. So I'll be crushed for you. And there's no middle ground. You either run from this truth, you run from this truth, or you say, I'll take it. You say, ah, the only way to stop existing and start living is to trust Christ. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.